Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. Pass it over. Oh, there you go. There I am. And uh, the magic touch. Um, yeah, Owen said that I was working over at Croydon for just over 20 years. I need you to know that I started work when I was five. Okay? Just keep that in your mindset that I missed school. I just went straight out to work. Because um, when people say things like the fact that I've been working somewhere for 20 years, it makes me feel really old. It really does. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm thinking, oh, okay, there you go. Um, but that's... that's I'll tell you a little bit more about me. I'm here all day today and I'm here tomorrow. So you're going to hear a lot of my stuff and you're going to hear a lot of my stories. So I'm trusting that I've got enough that will keep you interested and keep you awake. If I start seeing you nod off, I will do something to wake you up. Um, I don't know what I'll do, but I'll think of something. I'm quite creative like that. I will work something out. I serve the church at Croydon. I would say that I'm married to a guy called Tim, who's very nice, and I have um, two sons. One is 19 and one is almost 17. So clearly, again, I'm not old enough to have those (laughs) children. Um, And I'll talk a little bit more about them as the day goes on, I'm sure. I serve our church as the evangelist, and I don't know if you know much of what an evangelist does or or whatever, but some people think that an evangelist is um, basically, we've got that person on staff, and it's their job to tell people about Jesus all of the time, and because we pay someone to do that, we don't need to do it anymore. There are people in my church that think that. Well, Jazz, it's your responsibility to go and tell people about Jesus. No, no, no. The role of the evangelist is to be able to go and equip the church to be aware of the mission that God has called us to. We're all called on this mission, aren't we? And we all know that when we got saved, that I'm sure one of those instructions that was given to you was, now go and tell somebody else. And, um, and you probably have tried the now go and tell somebody else. And some of you I know in this room are raging evangelists and you love doing it. But my general understanding is most people's experiences is they've tried, they get a few knockbacks, and then you kind of just slip back into, I'll just be a Christian. And I'll kind of ignore that little bit. But actually, it's a battle. And it's, it's something that we're all called to. It's not just for the exclusive few and it's not just for those ones that are particularly extrovert it is for absolutely everybody I do know that when I say that word evangelism for some of you that will fill you with the most complete horror and dread oh no what am I doing here I'm so glad you're here today and some of you might not for some people might not even turned up when they realized what this weekend was about Um, but I'm hoping that today that some of the stuff that I will share will do will dispel some of the fear around evangelism and i'm hoping that the whole way that i share and the way that i talk will help you understand that actually we're on mission and i'm on mission i'm part of this with beacon church here in brixton or here in london wherever it is that your local community is that i am part of this and this is what i bring this is my bit of of mission that i bring to the church We live in a really odd time, of that I have no doubt. Um, Life is instant now, isn't it? 
So everything is done in this position, isn't it? We get all our information off of a screen in front of our hands. That's what happens, tap, tap, tap. We've got the news. We know what's happening in the world almost immediately. In fact, almost before it happens. Um, that is how fast life is these days. And we also know that we live in a culture in the UK whereby the church no longer enjoys a privileged position. You know, there was a time, not even that long ago, where the church kind of held some sway. And a time a bit further ago, the church actually held quite a lot of authority. And it, you know, it influenced the state, it influenced what we did. And uh, the, what the church said mattered. And people went to church whether they wanted to or not, to be honest. But these days, it's a completely different story. The church doesn't have that. In fact, most times, Christianity in our culture today is ridiculed, is it not? And we're marginalised and we're put to one side and people seem to uh, think that it's completely okay to take pot shots at Christianity. There are other faiths they won't take pot shots at, but they will at Christians which I struggle with a little bit because we are a Christian nation, are we not? And I struggle at people taking the mick out of the thing that I believe in, out of the one that I know. The reality is that people are still looking for answers. And what they're trying to do is find those answers in all sorts of ways. But the key is they are looking. And the reality is we know the answer. Yeah, you need to, you need to interact with me. I need to know that you're listening. It's really important. Um, we know the answer. We know that the answer lies in the, the person of Jesus, the work of the cross. We know that the answer lies in the fact that God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. And that the reason that we have life at all in any depth or in any fullness is because of what Jesus did. Just imagine for one moment, and it is, it is a horror, imagine... Today, if you didn't know Jesus. I mean, that just fills me with horror, the thought of not knowing Jesus. I could not do life not knowing Jesus, not being part of a local church, being part of this family. I mean, I've walked in this morning, and I don't know very many of you here, but I know that, that, that actually I'm at home here. This is part of my family, and, uh, and that excites me. A couple of years ago, my husband got really sick. In fact, it was about two and a half years ago. My husband got really, really sick, and it was all very, very dramatic. And um, he ended up with this really rare cancer that nobody's ever heard of. I'm not going to go into the details, but the first part of the journey, he was three months, three weeks in, in Croydon Hospital, and then we were home, and then a few months later, we were three weeks in a hospital in Basingstoke. And uh, Tim also works for the church, and he was off work for about four months in total. In that time, our church loved us and cared for us and cooked for us and looked after my boys and uh, stayed over. And I had to go to Basingstoke for three weeks, and people looked after me. I mean, I, we could never have done that if it wasn't for the family. I don't know how people, the family as in the church... I don't know how people can do life without being part of a local church. Local church is so very important. It is essential, sorry, not important. It's essential. It's God's plan. The church is God's plan. 
It's his way that he chooses to reconcile the world to himself. The church isn't our idea. And the reality is that God could do it anyway. But he chooses the church, the church which will be the bride of Christ. He chooses the church. So I just need you to hold that. That's really important. And we've been tasked to do the work of the evangelist. Now, this first session this morning, I'm going to go through a bit of a Bible tour, if you like. The second session after the break, I'm going to tell you a whole bunch of stories. And at the end of those stories, I'm going to, we're going to have some time of prayer and ministry. Um, So I'm just letting you know what's going to happen. Then I believe there's some lunch in the park. Yep. Cool. I haven't brought any lunch with me, so I'm hoping you guys have all brought some extra. And... um, and then this afternoon, we, some of us will be going out um, doing a questionnaire. I'm going to explain that this afternoon. But I actually really hope that that word some, this morning, if you're thinking, maybe I will, maybe I won't, I'm hoping that by the end of our two sessions this morning, you're like, I'm in. I'm coming out, Jazz. I'm, going to, I'm coming out. Who cares about is it what you're doing in the park? You're doing baseball or rounders or something? Yeah, that just won't be important. You'll be like, no, I want to be out doing what you're doing. So, um, let's start with Matthew 28, which is uh, at the, I hope you've got Bibles with you or you've got it on your phone or your iPads or whatever. Uh, Matthew 28, verse 18, I'll tell you when you need to look it up, you don't need to look up this bit. Um, Jesus said to me, said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in, in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. If you've been a Christian any length of time, you will know that that is called the Great Commission, and it's the one that everybody cites as the the reason that we go out. And the key to that particular verse is to go and make disciples not to go and make converts but to go and make disciples and in our second session I'm going to unpack what that looks like in reality for us but we are all called to do the work of an evangelist we're reminded of that in 2 Timothy and if I'm really honest my favorite and my best and my preferred method of evangelism will always be down to friendship evangelism one-on-one, real, authentic relationships where you live your life before people and they observe your life and I will explain how that happens in the second session. It's just my way of making sure you stay and come back for the second session. Um, So we'll talk about that and the easiest way to do that is tell your story, always. What I want to look at this morning is a completely different passage but a passage that is very familiar to many of us. It's in Luke 14, Verse 15. Before I read it, I need you to know that Jesus is is in a place right now where he is sitting with uh, some of the Jewish bigwigs, if you like. You know, these guys are important. They've got important roles. Maybe they're lawyers or I don't know what they might be, but important roles in (coughs) Jewish world. They're educated. They know what's what. And so Jesus is hanging out with them. They're not necessarily his friends and they are looking for a way to trip him up. So we're entering in in that point of the story. 
And Luke 14, verse 15, begins like this. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom. Jesus replied, A certain man. Now let's be clear here. A certain man in this context is Jesus referring to God. So a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just brought a field and I must go and see it, please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out, please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. And then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. The passage begins with one of the Jewish guys saying to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And it's a little bit of a, a, a push at Jesus because at this point in the story, if everybody... All the Jewish people would have known that that particular sentence requires an answer, a particular answer. You know, like, um, uh, if I said something like, um, let's see if it works here. If I said, God is good, what is the response you'd give me? All the time, God is good, yeah. That's kind of what, what, what we hear. That's kind of the normal thing that happens. So this particular phrase back in the day, had a particular response. And I guess this Jewish leader's provoking Jesus. Oh, is he going to respond correctly? Has he got a cleverer remark than the response that he's supposed to give? And so Jesus doesn't respond the way that he's supposed to. And he tells this story. But this story is really a, a, a picking up from a prophecy in Isaiah. So if we turn quickly to Isaiah 25... which is what Jesus, where that, that statement comes from, what Jesus is now referring to. Um, it says from verse 7, no, verse 6, I think, sorry. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. See, Jesus knew which passage he was referring to, and so he uses the illustration of a, a banquet. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds of all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. 
Isaiah, so this is way before Jesus, it's back in the Old Testament. Isaiah is a prophetic book. And Isaiah is prophesying all that will happen at the end. And this is a passage of complete inclusivity. It includes the Jews, it includes the Gentiles, it includes everybody. And there's huge promises that death will be swallowed up forever, that the sovereign Lord will wipe away every tear from all the faces. He will remove people's disgrace. It is a beautiful painting or a picture of that that is to come. You know, you need to be excited about this. Look excited. You know, this is what we're promised. We're promised this. We live in the good of this. We live in the fact that we will not die. That we will live forever and ever and ever. And we will get to be with Jesus. That we have a hope that is far more uh, than anything anybody could offer. Um, but do you know how Chinese whispers works? You know? One person says something to somebody and then it just gets exaggerated and exaggerated and by the time it gets to uh, the end, the whole meaning of what has been said happens. So at the same time that this was prophesied, there were also writers and this was taught in churches. But this passage got twisted and twisted and twisted and twisted. So some of the other writers or other, I don't want to say translators, but at the time, so, for example, one of the pieces of writing from Targum says this, Yahweh of hosts prepare, prepares for all the people in this mountain a meal. Still sounds quite, quite similar. And although they suppose is an honour, it will be a shame for them and great plagues and plagues from which they will not be able to escape. And suddenly that passage that was of beautiful, paints a beautiful picture of that that is to come has been twisted. And the Jewish people are hearing stuff like this. Enoch writes this, there will be a great banquet and Gentiles will be included. So he's got that bit from the scriptures. But the angel of death will use his sword to destroy the Gentiles. The banquet hall will run with blood. What happened? Isaiah's painted this beautiful picture of that that is to come, it's been twisted. And then um, another particular writer wrote this. I can't say his name, so I'm not saying it. Um, but I've got all the information if you need it. No one can attend the banquet who is smitten. So no one can attend the banquet who is smitten in flesh, or paralyzed in his hands, or feet, or lame, or blind, or deaf, or dumb or smithed in his flesh with a visible blemish. Anybody got a spot? No, we wouldn't be allowed in, according to this translation of, of Isaiah's passage, because Chinese whispers happened. And so the Jewish people are being taught all this bizarre stuff, and they're hearing it, and it, you, know, you know how it all gets through, and it gets through, and it gets through. And uh, going back to the original passage, you discover that actually... God just is including everybody. But suddenly these passages are not including people and we get this hierarchy. So the only people that are sitting around Jesus at that particular time are the ones that possibly may qualify. But I reckon they probably had a spot or two. So the appropriate response to that sentence that the Jewish guy said to Jesus was simply this. Oh, that I might be good enough. Or so, oh, that I might be found good enough. How depressing is that sentence? Oh, that I might be found good enough. That was the response. That's what they were supposed to say. 
We obviously live in a different world because we know that we have been qualified, that we've been made right, that we are good enough because of what Jesus has done. But let's go back to this passage. So I've given you a little bit of a, a history lesson there, sorry. Uh, but for those of you that like history, you might have enjoyed it. Um, let's go back to the passage. So the, there's three people that reject the invitation. And I, normally when I've heard that passage or when I've read it, I've kind of understood that passage as, well, they just kind of missed out. They look like pretty lame excuses, but they've obviously got different priorities and they've just missed out. Except I've, I've been looking at it and I've realised that, it, well, I've come to know that actually these guys have been really, really rude. Rude beyond belief. So the first guy basically says, but he's in the middle of a land deal, and so he can't come to the banquet. In Israel, back in the day, land is scarce, it's scarce now. To buy land would have taken months and months, if not years of negotiation. You don't suddenly think, oh yeah, there's a banquet today that I've already agreed to go to because I've had the invite. Oh, now I've been told to come. Oh, I think I'll just ignore the invite and pop over and look at my land and walk around and check. Because actually there'd have been much more going on. I mean, imagine trying to buy a house today. That takes long enough, doesn't it? Or even renting these days, trying to get the right place in the right moment. That's just a lame excuse. It's just an excuse. It's akin to saying... I'm just washing my hair tonight. The second excuse, ruder still. I'm going to go and check my oxen. Come on, there's a party. What are you going to do to go and check your oxen? You know, you've got five pairs of oxen, great. You're going to what? Check that they're looking all right, that they're still in the shed, that they're out doing their work in the fields. Buying oxen was also a big deal in those days. It was negotiated and it was, you know, worked out. And actually working them out in pairs was a really, really huge thing because you had, um, you have to, apparently you have to have oxen so perfectly matched that, oh, everybody's nodding at me, you all know this, this is great. So perfectly matched, have you done this recently? Oh, no. Um, that they tire at the same rate. If they don't tire at the same rate, they end up going around in circles. That's what happens. So, you know, that they work hard on making sure that oxen are, are correct. You don't just go, oh, yeah, it's party tonight. Now I've got to go and check my, check my oxen out. That's just, just rudeness. He is, but they are being deliberately rude. And then the last one, oh, I just got married. And I'm going to go, that is so shameful. To refer to your wife in that context publicly in the Middle East back then was shameful. One of the Hebrew scholars writes that to talk about your wife like that publicly, because obviously he's going, I'm, you know, I'm going to go home for a bit of... You know, that's what he's basically saying. Even I can't say it here. <laughs> and we're in 2019 and I'm in Brixton and in Brixton pretty much everything goes from what I can work out. Um, I am... But one of the Hebrew scholars writes that to say that in public about your wife, you're inviting 70 years of shame on yourself. That is rude. It is so rude to say this. So these three men in this particular story 
um, are rejecting the invite and then they are throwing it back. They are being unbelievably rude. And so the, the servant comes back and he has to report this back to his um, master. And the master, just in almost one line, shows the most phenomenal grace. Incredible grace. Grace that's been extended to us. Because in just one moment in that particular thing, everything to, in, the, in the passage of the Bible, everything turns. And uh, he sends the servant back out and he says to the servant, go back out. I want you to go and invite those that were not invited. There is space. I'm still going to have a party. Now, you could imagine that the master, you and I, if we were all rejected by all these people, because there's obviously a conspiracy to reject the master, you can imagine that he'd be upset. You could imagine that he'd get really angry. You could imagine that he'd want to um, speak badly of those three people. Uh, he might just want to sit in the corner and eat worms. I don't know. But he'd want to do... He, you could imagine that he'd want to get them back. And he'd want to moan about them and complain about them and like have a little bit of a pity party and, and tell everybody that would listen about what these people have done to him. But no, what he does is, and I've got a banquet. I'm going to have the banquet anyway. I'm going to have this party and I'm going to invite other people to my party. And so he goes out and he tells the servant to go and invite the others, the ones that weren't in that room. So the first tier of invitees, if you like, were the, the select few. But then there were the Jews who were outside of that, who weren't in the room, who maybe did have a spot or a blemish or were deaf or dumb or handicapped or something in any way. They, um, they would then, he went out and told them to get them and they came. And they came. And the servant comes back and he, he tells the master, oh, these people have come, but wait, there is more room. And, the, and so he's instructed to go again and he's going to go outside the city walls and to bring in those that aren't even Jews, to bring them into the banquet. And the master's very clear, he says, compel them to come in. Because imagine, if you don't normally get invited to stuff like that, and suddenly you get an invitation to say, come, you're likely to think, well, surely you don't mean that. Surely that's not, you know, you'd have to compel people. I don't mean, like, pick them up and walk them in and march people into the church or march them into the kingdom. What I mean is convince them, compel them, show them that they're wanted, that they have a place, that they have an invite. And so the servant goes out and he brings them back in. God has been saying for years and years to the Jewish people that he wants everybody to come into his kingdom. Everybody is included. They hadn't wanted to hear it. And here is God in human form, in the person of Jesus, reinforcing the message that everyone is invited to this banquet. Because at the end of that passage, the passage that I read from Luke, Jesus says, I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. See, up until that point, he'd been talking about a certain master. And suddenly, the tense changes, and he's talking about himself. 
I don't know if he was like eyeballing all the Jewish people there and looking at them going and you know, making it really clear, I'm talking to you, I'm talking to you. If you reject me, there are consequences. Everybody is invited. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? There, are, there is um, there's something really lovely in the story. Jesus doesn't waste his words in any of his parables. Jesus could have easily just given the invite out to everybody to start off with, you know, but he, there was a, a, a purpose in sending the servant out. And he allows the servant to grow in God's vision. See, the servant went out the first time and came back and was probably a little bit fearful. At that point, the servant just worked for the master. It was his salary. It was his job. That's what he had to do. But he came back and a little bit like, what's my master going to say when I tell him that everybody's rejected his invitation? And then the master says, no, go out. He gives him, gives him a bit more instruction. He says, no, don't worry. Go out and get the next layer of people. And the servant begins to work it out for himself because the first time round, it didn't work out. But the second time round, suddenly people are coming in. And so enough, by the third time, it's the servant that suggests to the master, oh, we could go there, there's still room, there's still room. I could still go and find some more people. Can you see where I'm going here? Because, you know, we, we do that whole thing of inviting a few people and we get rejected and then we just stand back. Oh, go on, I'm not going to ask again. I've been rejected. And you get a bit embarrassed and it feels a little bit awkward. And you're like, I'm not going to do it again. I'm not going to do it again. But actually, the master strengthens the servant with instruction and he goes again. And the master strengthens again and the servant goes again. And the servant gets excited. And once he begins to see some fruit, because he sees that people are coming, oh yeah, I can do this. I can do this. We can do this. Jesus is enough. I don't know why you come to church on a Sunday morning or why you're part of Beacon or why you're part of church full stop, I don't know. I'm really hoping it's not because it's just a nice place. I'm really hoping that you don't come to church just because you hang out with some nice people and that people will listen to you and if they say, how are you, and you've said you've had a rubbish beat, people will be really kind and they'll pray for you. I'm hoping that's not the only reason that you turn up to church, that it's some sort of club that you do on a Sunday morning. You see, if Jesus is the Son of God, and if Jesus died for us, and if Jesus is the reason that we live, then this invitation matters. It really matters. If Jesus is the reason that you wake up in the morning, then this invitation to other people matters. I can't stress that enough. It's the most important thing you will do. 
to invite other people and we invite them to our alphas and we invite them to toddler groups and we invite them to all the different things that you might do as Beacon Church. I should have looked up what you guys did as a church. I'm presuming you do those things. Coffee mornings? Yeah. Parenting things? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But anyway. But sometimes, here's a challenge. I think we act as though Jesus isn't true. Jesus is the thing that we do on Sunday mornings, possibly what we do in the mornings before we go to work. You know, we have a little quiet time or we play a little, I don't know, whatever app you're listening to for the Bible. But if we don't feel passionate about telling those that are around us, it doesn't match up to what we are, who we are worshipping on a Sunday, if you like. We need to look for that passion. The servant got it. It was his personal journey. He knows his master and he does what his master has asked him to do. But when the servant gets it, he takes initiative. The master walked alongside the servant. He didn't leave the servant on his own to guess. God doesn't leave us on our own to guess. He sends us. There's a second part to this challenge. When we talk to people about Jesus and we invite them, and we invite them to church, and I'm very specific about saying inviting people to church because I began saying how important the church is. And I began by saying, actually, this is where people will find freedom. This is where lives are transformed. This is where they'll hear the truth and the reality of Jesus and they will grow in him and they will be discipled. But we live in a world full of people who do not feel worthy. We live in a a world where people do not feel good enough. Actually, Phil and I were having that conversation just before, weren't we? We were talking about the fact that my, my kids aren't really into school. They're just not. They don't do school. And, um, and I know Phil was a teacher. We were just in that little education conversation. And uh, they, they really haven't enjoyed school. And they're both at college now. And, uh, and I said, my youngest is, is about to take his GCSEs. Unlikely that he's going to get any GCSEs. Uh, I don't want to speak that out badly over him, but I know my son. The reality is I know that my child will land on his feet. He just has that personality. He absolutely will make himself do whatever it is that he needs to do. And I know God has got a call on his life. But the world measures my child, because I get reports, on his academic ability and his you know, position in the class. And when I measure him that way, He doesn't look very good. He's gorgeous. He's a beautiful, beautiful child. He's loving. He's kind. He's thoughtful. He has lots of gifts and talents. They're just not going to be exhibited in a classroom. And yet my son has that anxiety around him. I'm not good enough. Mum, I'm not like you. I can't do school. We live in, and and we've given him every opportunity. 
And he still feels that. People do not feel that they belong. We have people who are on the margins of society all of the time. I think everybody thinks that everybody's invited to a party that they're not. I meet people like that all the time. There are people struggling with illnesses or disability, anxiety, money worries, language barriers, housing, or just overwhelmed by the pressures of parenting alone. There are people struggling out there that actually, if, if they were to come to know Jesus, those things don't disappear, but they would be able to handle them completely differently. You know, when Tim was sick, for all that time, a lot of my friends that don't yet know Jesus, I don't like calling them non-Christians, so they're either pre-Christian or they don't yet know Jesus. Because you don't want to be a non-anything, do you? And uh, they were, the number of times they remarked on the kindness of the church. They're like, what, they're cooking you more meals? They're cooking you more meals? Yeah, they're cooking me more meals. And, um, oh, actually, I can tell you, I might save that one for tomorrow. <laughs> I'll save that story for tomorrow. And, um, yeah, I sailed through that time. Yeah, I cried. And there were people that cried with me. There were some difficult moments, and there were people that stood with me and lifted me up. But remarkably, we've come through that time. Tim is really well, by the way. Sorry, I should have, I should have said that. He's well now. Um, we've come through that time in, a, in quite a remarkable way and relatively unscathed. It was a difficult time. People face like that, face times like all of the time. But when you know Jesus, you can handle it. And that's what we're offering. You know, we're offering freedom in Jesus. Jesus is enough for them. And so our second challenge is simply this. When we make sure they make sure that they come, but make sure that they understand there is no mistake on the invitation. When you bring people to church and you, you get they come here by whatever way they got here, make sure there's no mistake. Make sure that they feel that this is the seat that is for them. That it wasn't that they got someone else's invite that day, but know that it is all for them. Give them all the attention, lavish the attention. Help them understand that they have come home. This is the place for peace, place for transformation, that the invite is for them. Jesus never left us on our own. He didn't give us the command first to go and make disciples, but he promised us the Holy Spirit and he gave us the Holy Spirit first. And we do this with the power of the Holy Spirit. We invite with the power of the Holy Spirit. Tomorrow, I'm preaching again, and I'm going to preach, a, I presume you already know this, I'm going to preach a very clear gospel message. I'm not going to hide who Jesus is. I'm going to present all that Jesus has done in all the best way that I can possibly do it. Describe his glory, describe his majesty, and describe why he had to die. And I really trust that you have invited people for tomorrow. 
And nobody's going to have a register to check because that would be wrong. But if you haven't invited, can I urge you to invite today? Get on your WhatsApp or your text messaging or whatever it is. And whoever you've got in your mind, even right now, invite them. Look, it doesn't matter if they reject your invitation. That's not your responsibility. That's God's responsibility. I want you to be the inviter, to invite tomorrow. We're going to go out this afternoon. We might get the opportunity to invite for tomorrow as well. But seriously, even tonight when you get home, maybe you've got a brother or a sister or a parent or a child. Want to come tomorrow. Make tomorrow a very, very big Sunday. We are made in God's image, are we not? And God is a relentless inviter. He invites us into his presence all of the time. And I love the fact that actually, even when we just move a little bit towards God, he's already there. He's with us. We're never left on our own. God is a relentless inviter. And therefore, so are we. Let us not put the invite off, but let's go back again and again and again. I'm going to end our first session there. So the next session we've got, um, I've got, is all story-based, and I might even give you the opportunity to ask some questions. Um, so can I just pray for us? Is that all right? And then, because um, I actually really felt really strongly that you'd be inviting people today, so let's do that. Yeah. Father, I thank you that each one of us um, has received that invitation from you. And I thank you that you chose us first. And I thank you that you helped us to choose you. So, Father, we, are, we have been invited by you and we are in the kingdom, that we belong to you. Father, I pray that even this morning as we are uh, just learning and hearing more about you, that, Father, you would drop into our hearts and minds people that you want us to invite even for tomorrow. That, Father, we would understand that we're a, a people on a mission and that we would not be discouraged when uh, people say no. But that, Father, we would find grace for them. And we would know the moment and we would be led by the Holy Spirit. And we would invite again and again and again. Father, I pray right now for encouragements right around this room. That as each, each one of us steps out in faith, that we would see remarkable things happen in the days ahead. Amen. You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team, or upcoming events, please visit our website, which is beacon-church.org. You can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.